0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Galatians chapter 4 is where we're at, and I'm going to have David, who's a part of our tech team, come and read to you from
1: Galatians chapter 4. Uh, good morning. David, I'm sitting in the back of the room usually. It's nice to see your faces instead of the back of your heads. So Galatians 4, chapter, or Galatians 4, 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months, and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of the physical infirmity, infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you. That you may be zealous for them, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you.
0: We've reached this pivotal turning point in the message to the Christians in the region of Galatia. It's a turning point in the thematic arc of Paul's message to them, where he's built to this point, making it clear that that we have something significant in having Jesus. And now he's beginning to warn us after building that case that look at all that we have in Christ and in his grace. He's now beginning to warn us to not go back to what we were before. But there's also a shift, a turning point here in Paul's tone and in his appeal. You see, thus far in Galatians, you've noticed that this is a really strong theological case that Paul has built here. And he's really built it brick by brick, step by step, a theological case to get them to to push away from the legalism that's being put on them and to return back to Jesus and his grace, to leave their newfound mentality of earning God's favor through effort, to leave that behind and embrace again the grace of God in Christ. It's been a theological argument. It shifts here to where Paul begins now a personal appeal, not a theological one. And he's appealing as a spiritual parent and father here. He's appealing very passionately as a pastor to them. And then the next week we're together, we'll look at how Paul will also give a historical appeal to them about their needing to keep their eyes on Jesus. And so I don't know if you noticed the the shift in the, the tone of Paul's pen, But the shift is here, undoubtedly. Look at the way that he addresses them, the affectionate things he says, like in verse 12, where he calls them his own brothers, his family. In verse 19, he wraps up this little section by giving imagery for a second time of him as a parent, a loving parent who loves, he says, my little children. You see, we've seen thus far Paul the great confronter who seems fearless and and is fine with a good confrontation or two. It's him publicly confronting Peter. It's him publicly confronting the whole of the Jerusalem council. It's him referring to these people because they've been swayed by false teachers as being foolish and saying that he's shocked that they were fooled so easily. But now you're hearing Paul the parent and the pastor. Martin Luther, as he wrote in his commentary on Galatians, he says that these words in this section breathe Paul's own tears. You see, Paul's a spiritual parent to these little spiritual children he has there in Galatia. Ones that he said, verse 11, that he labored for. He's saying that there was pain and great work involved in the process of seeing new life develop in their hearts in the first place. Now, I know this is offensive to every woman who's here because you're thinking, what in the world does a man know about labor? And you're right. But that's the imagery that Paul uses here. In fact, he says that he's laboring for them again. That's what he feels right now. That because they've turned away from Jesus, he's going back through that whole process of trying to bring about new life, of straining and fighting and hurting. And that he's carrying this deep burden of a parent for the well-being of these, his spiritual children. You see, Paul's the one who initially took the message of the gospel to them, and now he feels this growing sense of responsibility for them as he's watching them now make a turn in the wrong direction. And he's corrected them, and he's even reasoned with them, but now he takes a very different approach. And this is something that if you're a parent, and you can think back to when your children were small, you probably remember doing this yourself, where you've corrected your child, you've reasoned with your child, You've even disciplined your child, but then comes the moment where you just question, like are they ever gonna get it? Is this ever gonna click for them? With one of my own kids this week, it was when I then reached forward and gently put a hand on their shoulder and leaned in close and tried to calmly say, I love you and I love being your dad, but right now I don't quite know what else to do to help you to see this and to change your attitude. And then comes the Hail Mary that every parent has thrown, and then afterwards, like, what am I thinking? Where you look at the kid, and six-year-old perplexed look is looking back at you, and you say, well, what do you think I should do? I mean, what would you do if you were in my shoes? How would you handle this? Where all of a sudden you realize there's a shift. You're just helpless. Paul's not quite there, but he is at the point where he's putting a hand on their shoulder and pulling them close to remind them, hey, I love you. I don't know what else to do, though. I don't know what else to say to you. So I'm appealing to you as a parent to a child, he says. And there's three things that he does in that appeal that we'll look at. And the first is this, he appeals to them based on who they are. He appeals to them by reminding them of who they are. But he also appeals to them in a second way, and that's that he reminds them of what they were, what they previously were when they were lost before meeting Jesus. But he appeals to them also with a warning, and the warning is don't go back. So Paul here is going to tell us the same thing by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. He's going to tell us, remind us of who we are, but then what we were beforehand, and then he's going to warn us here, don't go back. So here's who you are. You see, in verse 9, Paul tells them that they now know God, or then he stops himself and says, or, or rather, you're known by God. Because really, when you think about it, in our relationship with God, it is God who's redeemed us, it's Him who's rescued us, it's Him that saved us, it's Him that adopted us, it's that, that He knows us, that He's done all of this for us, that changes our identity. And what's, I don't want to be dangerous, or I don't want uh, to fail to see the forest for the trees. You see, there's a danger in the way that we typically, as is our custom and pattern as a church, the way that we look at the scripture, I think has great benefit that we go verse by verse, line by line, and that we take our time going through a passage. It it has many benefits, but there is a potential problematic danger, and that's that we can lose sight of the forest, the whole of the message, by getting so hyper-focused on the trees. And I don't want to do that here, because Paul's appeal here is in light of the context. Paul's appeal here about not going back is in light of what he just told them was the truth and reality of all that Christ has done for them that we've spent two months now looking at together. And so I want to quickly rewind with you to remind you, this is what he's saying to them. He's telling them, this is who you are before he tells them. And remember beforehand who you were and don't go back to those things. So so just remember, this is who you are. This is what we've learned so far in Galatians. Remember how Paul started. He began in chapter one by telling them that you've perverted the gospel. To pervert the gospel means to reverse it. It's another way that it's translated. And they reversed the gospel's life-giving impact by reversing the order of the gospel. Remember, there is an order to the gospel of Jesus. It's that God loves us and gives himself for us and he accepts us. Then we respond and follow him. Whereas other religious systems, they reverse this, where we must give something to God or prove our loyalty or set aside our life enough as a holy thing in order then to have God respond to us. But that's not the gospel at all. In fact, he reminds them way back in chapter one and verse four, he says, this is all about Jesus who gave himself for us. Jesus did not come to receive from us. No, Paul's very clear. Jesus came singularly to give his life a ransom for many, scripture says. He gave himself for us. Remember, it's the Greek word, in the place of us. And Paul even answers, well, why does he do it? Well, he's not doing it because of anything that I've done. You no, know, at the beginning of his letter, in chapter one itself, he says he did it according to his own will. He did it out of sheer grace. He did it because it was in his heart to do it. It was his will to do it. It was his very nature to love and be gracious like this, which means that he alone receives the glory forever and ever and ever for all that he does in our lives. You see, Paul lays out the good news of the gospel of all that Jesus has done for us. And then like a a good leader, a, a good theologian, he's going to lead us through a series of questions that we've already looked at here in his letter to the Galatians where he asks then, well, well, does though the law contradict the gospel? You remember this, where he says that God's covenant with Moses, the law, it doesn't contradict his covenant with Abraham, the, the good news of, of promise of grace. No, the law complements it, and both of those covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus. You see, we're to understand that the law's main purpose and work was to expose us to ourselves by exposing our sin and need for a savior so the law and grace are not at odds with each other unless we fail to clearly see and understand the purpose of the law which was the other question he asked then well then what then is the purpose of the law remember the law it's a mirror and it's a tutor but it's not a scoreboard See, Paul makes sure that we're all very clear that we cannot do anything to earn God's favor or right standing with him, that you instead must receive the gracious gift of his unmerited favor by faith. He says, as it was even in the beginning, way back in Genesis with Abraham himself, so it shall be for you that right standing with God would not be accomplished by you. It would be accounted to you through your simple faith in Jesus. Remember, God's accounting is not pretending. No, it is accounting on behalf of Jesus' performance. You see, I am fully accepted. I am fully embraced because of Jesus' perfect performance, which is what Paul told us about Jesus' arrival, where he says in chapter four, but the fullness, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Remember, as Paul describes it, that the gospel is the father making you to belong again in the family of God through the means of the son of God, exchanging his identity for yours and the spirit of God affirming it to be so in your heart, affirming that you are now the beloved son of God who belongs at home in the family of God. This is the message to the Galatians and a message that's so good for us to hear afresh. It's what he's telling them, reminding them that this is who you are, that you are justified by God's grace, that you are being sanctified by God's grace because Jesus graciously took your place under the law and the curse of God. And when he did that, a whole new identity was given to us as our identity was exchanged with the Son of God making me the adopted son of God and co-heir with Christ, giving me incredible freedom because I now have the, the favor of God resting on me as the words of God that were heard, the Father's booming voice heard over Jesus now echo over me that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the message of the gospel. This is who you are, then Paul cautions them by reminding them of what they were before this. You see, Paul hits in verse 8, rewind even further back, reminding them of what they were before he came preaching the gospel of Jesus' grace to them. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. He's telling them this is what you were. You were at enmity with God. You were an idolater devoting your entire life to empty shallow replacements for God and for his grace you are worshipers of idols. You see Paul takes his letters recipients here on a stroll down memory lane that David read to us. He reminds them of when he arrived that he preached the gospel to them while they were lost in their idolatry to the to the Greek gods. But then he also reminds them of his own physical illness when he arrived he was weak and frail and vulnerable he wasn't well. He's seemingly alluding here to some sort of an illness that even brought him to the region of Galatia in order to find some sort of a treatment, apparently. But that's why he came, but he came also preaching. Now, we don't know what this illness was. I'm sure you could find books online that you could read that would speculate about what it is. All we know is that Paul had some sort of a prolonged illness in his life and that he and others prayed that God would remove it from him, heal him of it, However, that illness lingered, and Paul would later write that God would use that illness to teach him that God's strength was made perfect in weakness. It's almost comforting for us, isn't it, to know that even someone like Paul had a prolonged illness and a prayer that wasn't answered, and yet a God who was faithful to care for him and carry him through that bout of an illness. You see, Paul's thorn in the flesh, as he would refer to it, would keep him proverbially as a thorn would, pinned close to the Lord as a constant reminder of his own brokenness and need for God. Some people speculate that he had some form of malaria that was prominent in this region in the lowlands. Galatians is a higher, or the region of Galatia is a higher elevation that maybe he was trying to escape from those swampy marshlands to get healthy and well, free from any more infection. Others would suggest that maybe it was an intense eye infection of some sort, which is why he would say that you are willing, if you could, to pluck out your own eyes and hand them to me. It's why maybe at the end of the letter to the Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I have written with my own hand, that this eye infection was gross and unsightly, but also something that was very painful for him. Or maybe it was that this was like the, the weird old school version of the shirt off my own back. You'd give me the shirt, you'd give me the eyes out of your own head if you could. Maybe it's not saying it's an eye infection. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher of old, the prince of preachers, as he's referred to, he says that he believes that it was that he suffered deeply from depression. And that this was the agony of the soul that he's talking about was a thorn in the flesh, as that was also Spurgeon's own suffering that he endured throughout all of his life. You see, we don't know what this illness was, but the point of it was not that that we know it. Paul doesn't divulge the info. The point is that the people were compassionate for him and cared for him in that vulnerable state. They welcomed him as if an angel, as if a messenger from God, as if he was Christ himself. They cared for him. But do you see that he's saying, but something's changed? But you no longer have that affectionate, caring heart. Do you remember how you welcomed me, how you received me, how you treated me when I was sick and vulnerable? But now, he says, their heart for him has gone cold, and they view him now, verse 16 says, as an enemy. And they view him as an enemy because he said, I told you the truth. Because I was truthful with you, because I shared the truth of the gospel, and because I'm applying pressure back on you, because I was truthful for you, you now categorize me as an enemy. I'll tell you, as a pastor, it's, it's super painful when there are people that you love and serve and, and deeply care for that you get to pastor who all of a sudden recategorize you and puts you no longer as someone that they also love and care for, but when they place you in a different category of someone that they now view as an enemy. It's painful, and this is the wound that he's dealing with. He's grieving more than just to change. What Paul's grieving here is a death. It's a death of his fatherhood to them, but more significant than that, it's a death of their sonship before God, which is even more heartbreaking as a pastor, to watch people leave their faith and move far from Jesus and his grace. Remember, Paul's reminded them of who they are. You've received a whole new identity as your identity was exchanged with God's son, making you the adopted sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. But then he reminds them, pushing rewind, going back even further, reminding them of what they were. Again, chapter 4, verse 8, New Living Translation, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. He's reminding them, before you knew Jesus, you were involved in gross idolatry. You see, as a Roman colony, we know what their religious figures would have been. Because Rome, much like every other ancient culture, was steeped in fantasy and in idolatry. They had a god for every element in nature and for every experience in life. If you were a businessman, then it would be Mammon, the god of wealth that you would worship. If you were a sailor, you worshipped Poseidon, the god of the sea. If you were a warrior, you burned incense to Ares, the god of war. Beekeepers, there was a god for that. Sick people, yes, a god. If you had family drama, then it was the god of family feuds and of revenge that you were burning incense to. Insomniacs, good news. Hypnosis and Morpheus, they were available to you to burn incense and to give in their little temples. If you like to party, worship Bacchus, the god of wine, or maybe worship Aphrodite, the deification of lust, as they referred to her, the goddess of beauty and of sex, of passion. If you loved yourself, you paid homage to Narcissus. His story is really weird. He's the guy who who was so infatuated with himself that he did not receive love from anyone else nor give love to any other, but when he saw his reflection in a pool of water, he sat next to it staring into his own eyes until he starved to death on the spot. From which we get our English term, a narcissist, which means to have an unhealthy fixation on yourself. If that's you, there's a God for you too. Now, what these deities all share in common, think about this, they all share this in common. They are hollow, empty masters who only demand and never deliver and whose demands are never satisfied. Think this through with me. Whether it's it's you as a person, you're, you, you're calling out to the God of rain that you, you seek to appease him so that your crops won't die. Or then the God of the sun that you, you seek to please so that your crops would grow after the rain. Or the God of the bees that you're appealing to because you need them to come and, and to pollinate your plants as they grow. Or or maybe the God of the family feuds because now you you must have disappointed him because you look at your home and all the stress about the crops was brought from out in the workhouse or out in the, the landscape or they're out on your property. It's been carried back from the farm to your dining room table and now your kids hate you because you've been so stressed out and your wife is sleeping in the back spare bedroom. And so now you're back looking for more gods to appease and try to make all of this right. All of them shared this in common, that they're hollow, empty masters who only demand and never deliver. Their demands are never satisfied. And Paul's saying, this this is what you were. And think about this. This is foolish in an empty system, idolatry enslaving people inside of that empty system, a never-ending system of effort with no return. He's reminding them, this is what you were. You were slaves in a broken system, serving an empty idol who only demanded and never delivered and whose demands were never ending. But here's where Paul's message kind of comes with a surprise left hook that hits us where we don't expect. Because yes, he's reminding them, this is who you are in Christ you are sons and co-heirs, but then reminding them, winding back even further, turning the clocks back, saying, this is who you were before that, you're worshipers of idols. But here's the left hook we didn't expect. It's that he warns them and he warns us, don't go back. I hope you didn't overlook Paul's accusation and warning here this morning. Again, Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served. this is past tense, those by which or those which by nature are not gods. These are these false gods, the Greek gods. But now after you have known God or are rather known by him, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Now you're observing days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. You know, at first glance, it can seem as though Paul's warning the Galatians to not head back into the pagan temples of Aphrodite or Bacchus or Mammon. It looks like at first glance that he's warning them not to go back into their licentiousness, their immoral lifestyles that they led before meeting Jesus. As Paul appeals to them in verse nine, you're turning back. Do you desire to go back into bondage as a slave? But remember what Paul's whole letter is about. Remember what his letter is warning them of. It's not warning them of paganism or hedonism, is it? It's a warning about religious legalism. These false teachers were not coming to push them to ignore God's laws as they formerly did when they were pagans and enslaved to these Greek gods. No, they were appealing for the opposite, appealing for them to take on all of the Old Testament laws and ceremonies and customs and calendar events so that in perfectly keeping all of them, they could make themselves pleasing with God. One commentator, he said it this way. He said, Paul is saying that earning one's own salvation through scrupulous biblical morality and religion is just as much enslavement to idols as outright paganism and all its immoral practices. In the end, the religious person is as lost and enslaved as the irreligious person. Now, why are they just as enslaved? Well, Paul says in verse 9, because they are both based on weak and beggarly elements. He used the same term in verse 3, when he tells them, you are in bondage under the elementary principles of the world. You see, this ancient Greek term, it was used to describe natural or or nature's basic elements. Things like fire and, and water, air, soil, wind should come to mind for you. The basic elements of the world. But it also would be used, this term would, to allude to the pagan belief that a spiritual entity existed behind each of those elements, like a puppet master pulling the strings, causing those elements to work in our world. Which is why, if the crops needed rain, you sacrifice to the rain god. Or is why, if if a wrinkle developed, you'd sacrifice to the goddess of beauty because they believed that there was a God behind each of those realities. And Paul will later write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, and he will talk to them about this very thing, saying emphatically in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there is no God but the one true God. All of these entities are empty. There is no other God except for the God of the Bible. And that for these people to sacrifice to these gods and goddesses, they are actually sacrificing to fallen angels to rebellious demons who are alluring them, who are tricking them, who are duping them, who are using and exploiting this opportunity in people's lives. Paul's saying here really that any basic thing, whether it's money or sex or power or nature or beauty or love, any of those things can be made to function as your God, as it becomes the thing that you build your life around The thing that you would say or we could say that you begin to worship. You know, I would propose to you that I think that every person on planet Earth throughout all of the ages of human civilization, that every person is religious. Because religion is not based on having a belief in God. Because if that was true, Zen Buddhism would not be referred to as a religion today. Others would say, well, maybe it's a belief in the supernatural, but it's not that either. That's not what makes a religion. Or Hinduism that does not believe in a separate supernatural realm beyond our material world would not be a religion. I like how the book, The Reason for God, defines what religion is. It says that it's a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things that human beings should spend their time doing. Therefore, whatever ideology, whatever worldview that you live under, your quote-unquote religion, you are now worshiping the thing that you are subservient to. You worship the thing that you are subservient to. Think about this very practically. If your highest ideal, if the thing that's most important to you is the health and survival of this planet for future generations, if that's your highest ideal that governs your purchases and your decisions and lifestyle, regardless of the sacrifice or the inconvenience that it requires, you will give to it because it is your highest ideology, your highest, most lofty thing that you are now subservient to. You are worshiping that. That is your religion, the thing that is most important to you. It could be that the the world's golden rule, their version of the golden rule, that whoever has the gold makes the rules, is your highest ideal. And if that's true of you, then, then your life's pursuit will be power through the accumulation of wealth, regardless of the cost or the sacrifice involved. Because that is your chief end. You are subservient to it, and your whole life is an act of worship, worshiping the God then of wealth. Or if it's that pleasure is your highest value, then using a person, as long as it feels, leaves you feeling good, it doesn't matter because their wound isn't your problem. Exploiting others for your comfort or pleasure is all a part of your act of worship to your goddess called pleasure. You see, we worship whatever we think we need to fulfill and to satisfy the deep longing of our own individual heart. It's therefore a kind of self-salvation. Please hear this. It's a kind of self-salvation we all pursue. When we think that doing this or living like that, will will make me feel whole, will quote-unquote save me, then whatever we're serving is a form of self-salvation. You see, Paul's telling them, this is what you were when you were enslaved to Greek gods. You were a slave in a broken system to an empty idol who only demanded and never delivered, and whose demands were never ending. Because that god could never stand up and say, you've done enough, son, you can go home now. Because they weren't real. And Paul is warning them here that this is what you are becoming again by rejecting the gospel of grace and embracing the law as the means of your own self-salvation. You're now a slave in another broken system. You're serving an empty idol who will only demand and never deliver and whose demands will never be satisfied because the law will always show you that you don't measure up. You see, this is why in verse 11 he says, I'm afraid for you. I fear for you. You think that this is a noble cause. You think that this is a great thing. You think you're honoring God. Do you not see how broken this is? Because they've rejected their Savior and they've left their identity that Jesus gave to them as the sons of God to live now as slaves under a harsh and cold master. Okay, let's do two things to wrap this up. The first is let's zoom in to look at the the specific warning to them and the implications for them, and then we'll finish by zooming out and talking about the implications of this warning for us. So first, zoom in, and let's get hyper-focused on them in Galatia. You see, there's these false teachers who have seemingly wined and dined the Galatians and persuaded them to become functioning Jews before they would approach Jesus to receive forgiveness. They were teaching that basically Gentiles had to become Jewish proselytites first, and then they could go to Jesus to be fulfilled Jews, to embrace as a Jew, the Jewish Messiah, which is something that line of thinking is something that we're clearly seeing was clearly rejected in the first century church by the apostles of Jesus themselves. We've seen it here in Galatians, and you also see it in Acts 15, which is something that early in this letter Paul will reference. In fact, he gives us that glimpse into that meeting where the council of the early church fathers in Jerusalem in the first century, they affirmed that Gentiles were saved, they said, just as we are, by grace through faith, and that the Gentiles therefore did not need to shoulder, hear me please, the ceremonial laws. You see, that decision was not a decision to rid the church of the moral law. It was, however, to clarify the purpose of the moral law. As it says there, that no flesh is justified by the keeping of the law. The law is great for what it is, as long as we know what it is. Remember, it's a mirror and a tutor, but it's never a scoreboard. It's a mirror and a tutor that points me to my need for Christ, but it's never a scoreboard that I point to to show somebody, God or someone else, that I'm doing enough. I've put up a big enough score to win. It's never that. But their decision also was not to saddle the church with the expectation of the ceremonial laws. And those ceremonial laws, they included things like whether or not you're allowed to trim your hair or beard. There are restrictions on the fabric blend that you'd wear or on restrictions on your hygienic practices, restrictions even on your diet, what you could eat or could not eat. And in that meeting, they decided, we are not going to make you cultural Jews in order to be a part of the, the work of Jesus in the world, to be a part of the family of faith. No, we believe it's by grace through faith alone. You don't need to do these things. You see, it's been said that the moral law set the adherent apart ethically. From the world around them. Whereas the ceremonial law would set them apart culturally. If you followed the ceremonial law, you would look different, you would eat different, you'd even smell different. Everything about you would build a culture around you where you became the odd anomaly in it. So then what's the purpose of those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament? Because in the Hebrew scriptures, they refer to them as the clean laws. And these are the laws that that they're saying, this has nothing to do with the future of the church. These these can't, surely should not be held over people, whereas these Judaizers are coming and saying, unless you live this way and become a cultural Jew, you cannot accept the Jewish Messiah until you first do these things. So what was the purpose of them? You see, to break these clean laws made you unclean and unable to enter into the presence of God in the tabernacle or in the temple which meant that if you touched a dead body or or an unclean animal or person, or, or if you failed to wash your hands in the prescribed manner that was given, it was a pronouncement upon you that you were unclean and unfit for the presence of God himself. So what was the purpose of these ceremonial laws? Well, sure, a part of it, I think, was simply that God wanted his people healthy, And so he told them, wash your hands, go easy on the shellfish, and don't eat the pigs because you let them eat everything, and they're disease-ridden. So part of this is him just wanting the people healthy. But a part of this also, please hear me, was to show the people just how impossible it was to make yourself clean and acceptable to God. A couple of weeks ago in our Through the Bible reading in the Old Testament, if you're doing it with us, reading through the Bible this year, there was uh, writings about uh, the Day of Atonement where the high priest... The high priest, the one guy in the nation who could enter into the presence of God on that one day of the, year, of the year. He goes through all of these rituals to ceremonially wash and to cleanse himself and to cleanse his clothes and to change his clothes and to wash again and then to begin to em- enter the temple. But before he'd enter the temple or the presence of God, he still had to make another sacrifice. He had followed every restriction that the clean law gave, but what it was finally pronouncing is that he could not cleanse his own heart. So a sacrifice still had to be made. The clean law was to show you that you can't make yourself clean and acceptable and ready for the presence of God on your own effort. That's what it existed for. The other thing it existed for, though, was to protect and shelter the nation from being seduced into paganism, the paganism that surrounded them as other nations and tribes were around them who worshipped these false gods. You see, it's tricky to have a business partner with someone you're afraid to touch. It's difficult to fall in love with someone who's outside the camp of Israel and to fall in love with their gods when you're nervous about being in close proximity with them, when you can't eat with them. You see, God was keeping his people free from the entanglements of relationships and love and passion with people who had crazy broken ideologies and and practices of pagan worship that were so very destructive and causing the rampant spread of disease. And so the clean laws were a way to protect and isolate God's people from becoming entangled and entrapped in the paganism that surrounded them. Okay, now stay with me because you're thinking, why in the world is he telling me any of this? I don't know. No, I actually do know. Stay with me. That moment was the decision to not saddle the church with the expectations of the ceremonial laws. And there are two simple thoughts or implications that come out of that that I want you to think about. Christianity, therefore, is culturally pliable. Christianity is culturally pliable. Don't misunderstand me. The theology of the Christian faith is unwavering. It must remain unchanged across all of time and every culture. That's what Galatians is all about, right? He's contending we have to protect the heart of the gospel at all costs. He's contending for it. However, it's culturally pliable. There was no uniform that was distributed. There was no vegan or Mediterranean diet, although it's a wonderful diet, that was required to be upheld. There's not a mandated day or time of day that you must set aside to worship. Do you see, even in all of that, there's such uniqueness in Christianity? Because as you begin to picture other religions, you start to picture Buddhist monks who all have the same haircut. You picture Muslim men and women who are mandated to stop and pray at set times all around the world or Hindus' absence from the drive through line at in and out Burger. It's, it's Mormons that you're thinking of who have their 10-speed bicycle or Orthodox Jew who all seem to shop at the same uh, stores because they have some sort of a standard uniform. Now, I love a good if-then statement, so here you go. If we do not have cultural earmarks for the world to look at us and know that we are Jesus's disciples because of our matching haircuts or 10-speed bikes or dietary restrictions or head coverings or communal dwellings or the refusal to wear different fabrics interwoven together. If we don't have those things, then what is the world to find and how are they to recognize Christians across the globe in every culture who look very different? Isn't that true, that that's what Jesus said? The one way that they'd know us. Do you see that this moment protects it from being any other shallow way that they'd know us? Well, because every Christian church looks the same. Because every Christian gathering, it, they act the same. Every Christian dresses the same. You no, know, there's grace, and there's, there's room to move around uh, and move throughout the cabin. The one thing Jesus said, he said, they will know you by your love one for another. It's an amazing and beautiful thing. You see, here's the second thing. It's first that that means, therefore, that Christianity is culturally pliable. But the second thing is this, that Christianity, therefore, needs to be protected from the pollution of cultural traditions and standards that are then held as an expectation for other people. We have to be careful to not allow ourselves to begin to think or say that if they want to be a real Christian, a full Christian, they need to look like us. They need to dress like us. They need to worship like us. They they need to format their gathering like us. They need to bear with a long sermon like us. They need to fill in the blank like us. And we might not come out and say it quite like that, that if you really want to be a real Christian, you'll look more like the rest of us here. It may be more subtle than that in our hearts. It, It may be that we look at another church that's different from us, and you roll your eyes and think to yourself that when people are really ready to grow, well, then they'll leave that shallow place and they'll come here to hear the full gospel. When they're really ready to grow, they'll quit partaking of that style of worship and they'll worship God in song in another way, in another form with less fog machines involved. When they're really ready to take their relationship with Jesus serious, then they'll quit reading from that translation. Oh, NIV, it's the nearly inspired version. We all know that. When they're really ready, they'll trade their topical Bible teaching for verse by verse expository preaching. They'll trade their bikini for a one suit. They'll trade their Starbucks for fair trade. They'll trade their bacon for plant-based. They'll trade the mega church for the house church. Listen, if we do not have these cultural earmarks for the world to look at us and know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our identical regimented personal lives or identical regimented public gatherings, then what is the world to look at? and know that we are Christ, and know that we are Christ people, that they could look at Christians all around the globe. How will they know that they are Christians? Jesus said, by their love, one for another. That is the only thing that the world should be able to look at and say, see, I knew it. I just could tell. I could tell that you're a Christian, not because we all were a cookie-cutter model looking the same, thinking the same, voting the same, acting the same, but because of our love for Jesus and for each other. Now think back to the letter to the Galatians, because these false teachers have come along distorting their relationship as sons with a loving father, robbing them of the freedom and joy and confidence that flows out of that identity. It's so beautiful. But they've distorted it and exchanged it for an external, formal religious system. We're in the NIV translation, and verse 10, it says, they're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. In other words, your relationship with God has degenerated into a religious ritual. No longer is it the free and joyful fellowship enjoyed by a father and his son, his child. No, it's become a rigid routine of rules and regulations of writ and ritual, and it's empty. Let's be honest, we can personally understand the language of the young prodigal son in the story. We can relate to the feeling and statement that we read in his story and even discussed just a week ago, where he arrives home before his father and he says, I'm not worthy to be your son, just make me a servant. But how are we to fathom someone coming to God the Father and saying, I know that you have made me your son, but I'd rather be your slave. As theologian John Stott said it, he said, it is one thing to say I do not deserve it. It is quite another to say I do not desire it. To say I prefer slavery to sonship. Yet that was the folly of the Galatians under the influence of these false teachers. And Paul warns them, don't go back. Don't go back into empty idolatry. Don't trade a father for a slave driver. Don't trade your sonship for enslavement. But what about us? Is there relevance here to us? Because Paul warned them because it was idolatry to go to the Jewish law to try to make themselves acceptable. It was just as much an idol as their worship of Zeus and Hermes was in their past. But what about us? I mean, we're Western 21st century intelligent people, right? I mean, do we have idols? I mean, haven't we, haven't we evolved beyond such an archaic practice as idolatry? I mean, surely no modern Western man would pronounce mammon as his god that he worships. But how many men have sacrificed everything in the pursuit of their career and wealth? They've sacrificed their time, their family, even their own integrity to achieve it. I mean, surely no, no modern Western man or woman has pronounced Aphrodite as their goddess. But how many children have grown up in broken homes because of a parent's and their unbridled passion and pursuit of passion at any cost. Oh, look at what they've sacrificed. They've sacrificed something precious. Surely no modern Western person has pronounced the goddess of beauty as their idol. But how many people suffer so much affliction from comparing themselves to others and their beauty? It's not just anxiety that we're seeing, it's eating disorders and death even that's the byproduct of pursuing beauty at any and all cost to themselves. Oh, no sacrifice is too great to the goddess of beauty to whom that goddess has captured their heart. I mean, how many stories in in their crazy extreme, I realize, but how many stories did we hear when the market crashed at the end of the 2000s of sane, rational, successful, respected businessmen? throwing themselves from the top of buildings, taking their lives in rented hotel rooms, leaving simple suicide notes behind because without their wealth, the thing that they built their whole life around, what was left of them? They did really what seemed natural to them. There was nothing left, and so they ended their life. There was nothing left of themselves because the whole of themselves, their whole identity was built around their wealth and their prominence. And when that was stripped, what was left? and they were too afraid to answer that question. And so we heard it in headlines for weeks and months around the world, not just here, of people doing that same thing because we've started to see what the god of the modern age was. You see my my friends, idolatry may be archaic, but it is not relegated as merely an ancient affliction hear me please, idolatry may be archaic, but is not relegated as merely an ancient affliction. Modern men are still subservient to empty idols. And remember what all these deities share in common is that they are all hollow, empty masters who only demand and never deliver, whose demands are never satisfied. The great Welsh preacher of old, Martin Lloyd-Jones, had a well-known message that several commentaries and sources I looked at this week as I prepped this were all referencing. It's something he preached quite a while ago that you can find via Professor Google's help. You can find a transcript of that message he preached. He preached it on the very last verse in 1 John, where at the end of 1 John, John writes and says, my little children, keep yourself from idols. And what Lloyd-Jones defines as an idol, and I quote, he says, it's anything that holds a controlling influence in my life. Anything that holds a controlling influence in my life is an idol in my life. You see, it's true that idolatry can take on many forms, or we could say it this way, that many things can become an idol in my life, can become a rival God. Lloyd-Jones says that God has given me these gifts, but if I turn them in, any of them into a God, I'm abusing them. I'm worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And then he teases out the thought in this way. He says, it's possible for some of us even to worship our religion instead of worshiping God. It's possible for us to worship not only our own religion, but our own church instead of worshiping God. Theology has often become an idol to many people. They really have been worshiping ideas and ideals and not worshiping God. The idol in the case of some people is their own country. He said, for others, it's their own children. Still others, it's a relationship. Lloyd-Jones says that the supreme idol, though, is self. Timothy Keller has this incredible book that I made my way through this week that I encourage you to consider reading or even it's an audio book as well. You could listen through it. It's called Counterfeit Gods where he opens up this whole idea just so masterfully where he identifies and characterizes idolatry as anything so central that you do not believe you could have a meaningful life without it. The things that you say, unless I have this, I am nothing. He said that idolatry happens when we turn even a good thing into the ultimate thing. You see, I'm not asking you if you have rival gods, warring for your attention, your affection, or your allegiance, because I think it's safe to assume that all of us do. Our question instead is, well, how do we expose these things if Paul is so concerned about this? And saying that we'll be enslaved again rather than living as free sons. How do we expose these rival gods in our hearts? And then how do we uproot and remove them from our hearts? It's rightly been said that the Bible portrays your heart as an idol-making factory. The, The prophet Ezekiel, he would write, in Ezekiel 14, talking about how God's speaking to the people, and he warns them saying, you've not just put an idol on the hearth in your home, nor on the altar in your temple, but they exist in your heart. You're constantly producing idols in your own heart is where they live. He's saying that the, the human heart in its broken state will turn even good things like a marriage like a family, like children, like a successful career or freedom or beauty or skill or integrity or competence or comfort, a desire for the love of others. It'll take a good thing like that and the human heart will turn it into not just a good thing, but the ultimate thing. And when it does, the human heart has begun again the process of being an idol-making factory where we find ourselves willing to give anything up that we have to have it. The thing that, that we look at and say no sacrifice seems too great if it means keeping the ultimate thing in our lives that we finally have attained. You see, money and sex are not the only idols that rule in the hearts of modern men and women. Good things that are made into the ultimate thing or are made into the pursuit of our lives are the destructive idols that plague those outside the church and inside of it too. Our question, though, is how do we expose them, and then how do we uproot them? How do we remove them? And I just want to be really practical with you, and we are done. This is how we finish. How do we do this? Well, I think we start by looking at what you love, trust, and sacrifice to. Because those are the characteristics of idolatry, right, even in ancient times. What do you love, trust, and sacrifice to? And those things will look different for all of us, so you have to do the internal wrestling, and invite the Holy Spirit to expose those things for what they are. Because you might love shoes, but your love for shoes is my love for the Padres. You might trust a political party, and for you it might be that, but for me it might be my trust in my own competence. Simply loving and trusting something, though, doesn't make it an idol. But then we have to ask the hard question of, but what am I willing to sacrifice to get or to keep the thing that I love and trust so much. And then we have to ask ourselves the hard question, has this good thing become an ultimate thing in my life? Something that I fear that if I didn't have it, I don't know who I'd be without it. Well, let me ask it this way. What are your nightmares about? Like what's, what's the thing you fear losing most? What's the thing that if you lost it, you'd struggle to think of, of how could life continue without this thing? Or think of it this way, what was the statement or circumstances or loss that you've suffered that is stuck with you all this time in your life without you being able to shake it and without you knowing why you can't shake it? I mean, in a moment like this, I mean, who who could keep themselves from being vulnerable and be like, I'll be the first in the pool, watch me, like, because there's a crowd of people. Let me expose my own heart. Um, so I'm so eager to do that. So I'll, I'll quickly tell you this, and you can close your Bible. I was thinking this week, there was a period in time in my life when I first got into ministry coming out of college where I, I didn't realize it in the moment. It took years for it to come to the surface, but my idol was my own integrity and reputation. And I didn't realize how important it was to me until I chose to leave that church many, many years ago. I started working there before Lindsay and i even met. But when I chose to move on from there, For specific reasons and also believing that God had called me to leave, but wanting to do it in the right way. But when it was announced that I was leaving, the man who made the announcement from the stage, he finished the announcement explaining that I was leaving by saying, but can you blame him? It's a bigger stage. It was a shot at my integrity. It tarnished my reputation. I wasn't angry in the moment, but I found for years that that was like a voice I couldn't shake. And that voice even made me question my own intentions, but that voice made me so insecure and so fearful that people viewed me that way. What I started to realize over time was that my idolatry, my, my rival God, was my own integrity and my reputation. It was a good thing that became the ultimate thing, that I couldn't shake the fact that this man who should have been trusted and should never have said something like that, that he would have shaken it and tarnished it as he did. Later on in my life, I got married. And I remember sitting telling someone, I may not, might not have the skills or giftings to be great at anything in life, but I want to be a great husband. And I think I can be because to be a great husband is not about skills or natural gifting. It's about choices more than anything else. It's about dying to yourself. And I made it my goal, a good thing became though an ultimate thing. And I didn't realize it until Lindsay and I had been married long enough that then we had children. And when we did, I started to see and realize that what Lindsay needed in the world to refill her heart and recharge her batteries wasn't just alone time with me. It became that she needed time away from me and our house and our kids, just like every other human being who's been a parent. You need a break sometimes. And the fact that I took that so personally, and it put me into such insecurity when I thought, I'm no longer for her what I've always longed to be was when I started to realize that the good thing became an ultimate thing. You know, we, like every other pair of people who are two imperfect people who live together and rub against each other's imperfections until you find where those imperfections are in yourself, it's called marriage, and it's also called fighting, or it's called difficulty. We hit, it our, we hit our hardest season in our marriage, and I remember it was the most disorienting phase of my life because I couldn't help but question, who am I if I'm not a good husband? Who am I if we don't have a polished marriage? Who am I if this has had hiccups and bumps in the roads? What am I if I'm failing at the thing that wasn't just a good thing, it became my ultimate thing? I had to release the idol of my heart and say, God, forgive me, I repent. You know, it's been for me coming here. Coming here brought me face to face with so much insecurity. Insecurity. Like, I hadn't planned on pastoring a church. In fact, if you know much of my story, I was opposed to this idea for many, many years. And it wasn't till the COVID era that my heart softened and I began to pray more open-handedly. But in, before that, I, I'd stiff-armed it so many times in my own mind and, and heart, saying, that's not for me because I have insecurities and because I know that this would really stretch me. And I'd rather be comfortable than stretched, like most people. And coming here, there wasn't much time to plan or prepare. I felt almost like, because it happened so quickly... I got here and realized, man, I my, what a great joy to know that a sovereign God led me here. And I do believe that. But my worst fears are realized because people are beginning to see my incompetence. That I wasn't a competent leader. That I'm, I'm not still a competent organizational leader like I'd like to be. That I put so much pressure on myself each week for this pulpit time not just because I want to honor God's word, but because there's this icky thing in my heart that exists of a desire not just to be competent, to be perceived also as competent. It's why sometimes the worst three minutes of my entire week are the three minutes after I pray and walk off this little tiny platform and stand on the side during a worship song, because it's not just my insecurities that are there to greet me and shake my hand and say, hey, glad you're still here. So are we. But I also have an enemy who loves to kick me in those moments and say, see how foolish you are? You, you really fumbled this. What do you think you're doing? Those are the moments, that couple of minutes, I preach the gospel to my own heart every week, saying, God, this is not who I am. But it wasn't until this week when I slowed down and said, God, why is this so hard for me? That I felt like what, what was staring back at me was an idol of competence. Competency. That I want to be that, and that that good desire has become an ultimate thing, and that's why... I live with so much pressure. That's why sometimes I work too much. That's why I have so much insecurity. But here's the hard thing. It's not enough just to remove, please, this is the most important thing I'll tell you all day today. It's not enough just to try to remove and uproot a rival God, an idol. You have to replace it. It has to be replaced. You can't just remove it because we long to worship something. It has to be replaced by something that's more beautiful, a God that's more wonderful, a God who doesn't just demand, 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 but a God who gives. You see, these false gods in my own lives had to be replaced by the true and living God. The good thing that became the ultimate thing of my reputation and integrity had to be released when I realized how foolish it was. Like, so what if I reach my goal and I worship my God and people take me serious? What's the point? How silly a drive that is. Why pursue something like that? It's so foolish. When I realized it for what it was, and then I turned to Jesus and opened my arms and said, and you have made me perfect in the sight of God. And my reputation in heaven has been redeemed and changed because I receive the blessing and covering of the Son, and I'm free to live without concern of my reputation or or how people view my integrity. I don't have to prove it or keep it in the way that I felt before because, Jesus, you've pronounced me clean and welcomed. It's that my marriage and my role as a husband that had gone from a good thing to the ultimate thing, that my whole identity was wrapped up in, had to be released as I look the direction of heaven and the perfect union I have with the Father who is the perfect partner who alleviates the stress and pressure on me to try to be that for someone else, knowing that Jesus is that for me and will be that for Lindsay too. It's that my idol of competence, of being competent or even being seen as competent, as being perceived as that, is not just uprooted by a sovereign God, it's replaced by it. Because I have a sovereign God who brought me here. I trust in him. And I have a sovereign God who's also the shepherd of this church and who promises to lead it, who cares for you more than I do. And if that's true and has a bigger heart for this community around us than even I do, then I look his direction and say, my competency doesn't matter or will not add anything to the success or life or health of this church. Because you're the good shepherd and this is your church, not mine. You see, an idol can't just be uprooted and removed. It has to be replaced.